This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Don't you just love living in this city? Where else in the world do you get four seasons in a day where the back seat of your car is your second wardrobe and where you can wake up to sunshine on a Sunday morning that, put, that puts a big old smile on your face? Yep, Melbourne. Like the memory of an ex-girlfriend or boyfriend, you just can't shake. The place kind of grows on you. Now, today on the show, we are going to shake off the pre-winter blues and talk viruses. Joining us will be a vaccination veteran, Sonia Elia. Now, Nurse Sonia has worked at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne for the last 21 years and has 15 years' experience in immunisation. She was recently endorsed as the first, first Victorian nurse practitioner in the field of immunisation. I'm getting a thumbs up from Nurse Eddie Sonia is also the Vice President of the Immunisation Nurses Special Interest Group and is the Manager of the Immunisation Service at the Royal Children's Hospital. Now, we were going to ask Sonia to give us our flu jabs on air, but we couldn't wait and we got them <laughs> already. So instead, we'll be talking with Sonia about the flu vaccine, why it's important, what it does, how it works. Our second guest is someone you hope you'll meet if you are having a stroke. Professor Peter Mitchell is a neurointervention radiologist. In street talk, he's a guy who slides tiny wires into your brain circulation to break up the clots. Now, when I was going over Peter's CV, I actually wondered if he was two people. He's published in Nature, uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, Frontiers in Neurology, just over the last couple of years. And just this week, his landmark study on stroke treatment appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. So if you want to know what the optimum treatment is for brain clot, then this is your man. And talking of clots, I'm Dr. Mel Practice. I'll be joined on the show by the effervescent and ebullient nurse EpiPen, manager of Spleen Australia. Got that right. As well as Dr. Jean, <laughs> Dr. G-Spot. I'm a little bit seedy this morning. Dr. G-Spot, a psychologist of the stars and NHMRC research scholar, fellow scholar. Today it's a show for the younger and the older members of our audience and everyone who loves them, including Kentus Maximus, who's standing over me. We've got music, the latest in the medical news, and as always, plenty of dumb questions from yours truly. So stick with us for the next hour of Radiotherapy. Good morning, Nurse EpiPen. Morning. You're looking chipper. Did you ride in with that yeah, fluoro yeah, thing? Yeah, I always ride in. Did the, Rain, uh, hail, shine, you name it. I'm on the bike pedalling to Triple R. What, what, there, are, there are tram works going up and down uh, Nicholson Street. Yeah, Did that bother we, ca- you? we came a shortcut, a back road. Really? Yeah. Oh. Well, it's just... I have a husband who knows Melbourne like the back of his hand and all of a sudden we were at the Milky Way coffee shop. You are an inspiration to people, really, because I've often thought to myself, no, 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 no joke, that you ride as any chance you get, and I'm thinking I should be doing the same. So a couple of times you've inspired me to ride to work and around the place. Good on you. Yeah, good on you. Um, Dr. G Spot, thank you for coming in this morning. Did you did you ride in? No, I came from Glen Waverley, so it was a little bit, little bit far. Tram, train, car, car. Oh. 
greenhouse. Greenhouse. <laughs> I'll walk next time, <laughs> Dr. To, leave pay, it, to pay penance. Leave it five. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be here for the afternoon show. Like, <laughs> like Qantas, you know, they're going to have a zero carbon emission type of uh, uh, flight. Have you heard about this? I have, Where yeah. Everything is recycled yeah. and nothing <coughs> gets wasted. Hey, um, Sounds cool. now talking about medical news... Because there was lots happening this week in uh, in the journals, you, Doctor G Spot, have got some fascinating insights into sleep and what happens when I you don't have. sleep. Yeah, yeah. This one's for all the insomniacs out there. I know there's quite a few of us. Um, so what us? Oh, you've revealed. Uh, I, <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> some, so I think we all suffer from bouts of insomnia yeah, at do. times, and uh, NHMRC grant season brings it out in all of us. Um, so in this study coming out of the Netherlands, um, mm. they found that insomniacs are haunted by painful recollections and trivial missteps because their brains aren't processing emotional distress as they sleep, whereas people who have normal sleep can process these emotional distressing events from their day. So that um, is contributing to uh, insomniacs feeling like they're depressed and anxious. And what the study actually did, which I thought was super cute... Cute, that, cute. Yeah, super cute, was that they got their participants to actually do a karaoke performance as their emotionally distressing event. And they got them to sing one of the hardest songs to sing, the Dutch national anthem. But they, then, these were Dutch people. That's yeah. right, yes. It'd be even harder for us, right? <laughs> God, I haven't, haven't got a chance. And uh, they, so they listened to these recordings before bedtime and then slept and what they found was that um, the people who had normal sleep, they woke up and they felt okay about their karaoke performance. They'd processed that event while they slept, whereas the people with insomnia actually felt worse about their karaoke performance. Oh, so mm. you, if you don't sleep, you don't get over traumatic events as easily? That's Is that right. what they're saying? Yeah, and then it carries on into your day and impacts your, your mood and can lead to depression and anxiety. So that would... And then the next night you don't sleep because you're worried about it. So That's it's right. like sort of snowball type of thing. Yeah, so you're forced to listen to the karaoke performance again and by the end of the study you are not a happy a mess. Chappy. Exactly. And do they have any kind of... Because, um, you know, most studies end with more research is required in this area or mm. this is our treatment for it. Did they end with anything like that? That's They're sort of looking more into CBT being used for insomnia, which is current gold standard treatment anyway. Which is cognitive behaviour therapy. That's right, yes. And the idea behind that is that you look at the thoughts that are stopping you sleeping and the behaviours, like having coffee or lots of Exactly, water yeah, that you... kind of sleep hygiene stuff yeah. of, you know, relaxing before bed. Okay. Sleep is important is what you're telling us. It really is. And and uh, not ragging on karaoke either. I think it's awesome. Just make sure you sleep well after it. Okay. Nurse EpiPen, over to you. Over to me. So I was looking at the MJA, which is the Medical Journal of Australia. It is. And I um, saw something about strokes. And given that we've got a world expert in our studio today yeah. who's talking about strokes, my stroke is so two different types of strokes. One is a clot stroke where a blood clot has occurred or if the, well, we'll hear more about that but mine is about bleeding strokes so you can have a hemorrhage in a blood vessel in your brain. So this was a study that's um, been done 
um, in New South Wales by the uh, head of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre, mm. and his name is Shane Dark. There's mm. a group of them. Also, um, a uh, forensic death group have been looking at this. So what, the, what I'm trying to tell you is a story about psychostimulants may cause fatal strokes in young adults. So psychostimulants are things like... So, um, so psychostimulants are things like um, ecstasy, amphetamines, well, amphetamines... Speed. In speed. Yeah. But there's some medications that are psychostimulants mm-hmm. as well, so we can give them to children. And mm-hmm. so they're medical um, under very close observation. Mm-hmm. They're the safe ones. Mm-hmm. But well, I'm talk- the ones I'm talking about are the cocaine and amphetamines. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that they've seen a spike in the number of young people without high risks having strokes. And they may oh. be associated with people the deaths of young people at um, festivals right. we're not completely sure about right. what the drug effects are right. but um, in reading um, this article they were saying about 76 million people use psychostimulants that includes the illicit drug use this would be this, worldwide this is worldwide no. <laughs> it's like everybody in australia uses it like four times <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. And um, so it's it's, one in five strokes in young Australians aged um, 15 to 44 um, have used psychostimulants. Mm -hmm. So it's just a flag that they're trying to work out what's been going on. And um, this guy called um, Professor Shane Dark has just written a book called The Clinical Guide to Illicit Drugs and Health. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a benchmark book to read because GPs understand... Of marijuana and quite one of the re- the regular use of drugs, but these illicit drugs that people are using more and more, young people are trying. So the MDMA, the methyl dioxymethamphetamines, yeah. that's the ecstasy. They're they're using it, and mm. kids are experimenting it. And the average age I looked up was um, 20, 20.6. The average age is, of first, yes. yes, of first trying these mm. drugs. And 7% of Australians over the age, uh, age of 14 have tried one of these drugs. How many? 7%? 7% of, people, of young people over the age of 14. I would have thought it would be more than that, to be perfectly honest. Well, th- you've raised a point because a lot of it is undercover. So these are p- kids that they've questioned, but a lot of... Yeah. Well, this is from yeah. the no, Australian no, no, not, Drug not Use doubting, Statistics. Doubting you, I'm just saying it's... Yeah, I would have thought it had been a lot more than yeah. that. Mm. Um, it probably is. And is the association, do they reckon, between stroke... And we'll ask our expert when it comes on. But, but is the association between stroke and uh, psychostimulant use that um, your blood pressure just goes Correct. up, 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 up... Correct. And you burst it's a to, to, to hypertension. And young people might have... There's, these are rare, yeah. but they might have little anomalies in blood <sighs> vessels that they yeah. don't know about and they've popped and... There's, there's a lot of work b- being done to try and understand why young people die at gigs yeah. and um, from these drugs. So, And because it's all illicit and illegal, it's a really hard area yeah, to study. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm pro-drug testing at festivals mm. because I think it's an opportunity to educate people. And anyway, watch this space. Maybe we can... I don't know if um, Professor Mitchell knows much about this, but he might comment. But his is more the clotting, the clotting and the causing strokes rather than this is blood vessel bleeding that's causing these strokes in it's young a, people. He's a specialist in clot. A special, he's a clotty person. He's a clot specialist. Clot, clot specialist. We'll get along very well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone.
Indeed, you are listening to 3RRR in the studio with me are Nurse EpiPen and Dr G-Spot and we're welcoming our special guest. I'm just not talking well today. There's something... Yeah, I think I'll have to take over. Uh, Did just, you have a late uh, night? Please, please do EpiPen, save okay. us all. <laughs> what's happened to me? I, um, sitting directly opposite me is Professor Peter Mitchell. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Um, thank you so much for coming on to our little radio show. Now, just tell the listeners what you do and who you are and where you work. Uh, I'm a neurointerventional radiologist. I work at Royal Melbourne Hospital where oh, I'm head me. of neurointervention, uh, which is this hybrid between uh, operating uh, on the brain and doing uh, imaging of the brain, done through a minimally invasive approach. And I'm head of the endovascular clot retrieval service for Victoria based at Royal Melbourne. Okay, we're going to have to that dissect is, that. Yes, oh, that was way too fast. Sorry, my head's spinning. Just say that in slow terms no. and little explanations, please, Professor. Thank you. <laughs> I'm uh, so I'm a, I'm a doctor, a radiologist by training. Then I did further training in minimally invasive um, operating. So instead of doing a cut on the head. Uh, we put a little needle into uh, an artery at the top of the leg and then we navigate up the pathway through the arteries to get to the head where we can treat either a bleeding stroke or a clot stroke. Can I just stop you right there? Right? I've, I, I, you guys work your mojo. I mean, like I've seen it done or I've seen patients who have had it done where they've had a, a clot retrieved. I just don't get it, right? You put... A tiny wire in the femoral artery in yeah in the in the leg. You then go up through the femoral artery, go up into the carotid artery. Yes. Yeah, which is the artery going to the head, and then you go into the brain circulation system, which is kind of like you know if you're old school, it's like a Melways. It's like just you know arteries going every. How do you turn down all those branches and up all those trees? And because it's like it's it's a, it's a it's a mess up there. It's tiger country. It's also been the the challenge, you're, yeah. you're right, there's so many small branches and the arteries are so small and they're very, very fragile, so they're very easy to damage. Oh, so you could poke the wire through it? You can poke the wire through oh. it and if you poke the wire through often. it, it's not something that most people can survive. So it's, it's a high-risk action if that happens. So you have to be very, very careful. And it's also why treating stroke has taken a while to get to this point. Because in other systems like the heart arteries, the kidney arteries, arteries elsewhere, if you put a hole in the artery, you've got time to fix it. In the brain arteries, if you put a hole in the artery uh, or you cause a shower of small clots to go further downstream, um, that's almost irretrievable. So that's been the challenge. Uh, See, my mouth is is a gape right now, if, uh, if only listeners could see. But would these, wow. could we say these are rare complications? Extremely rare. Yeah. Extremely rare. So yeah. um, 20 years ago, it was something that was held back the area. Uh, you couldn't go forward because it was, we were so afraid of these complications. Yeah. Yeah. What's happened in the last five to ten years is we've developed new techniques as well as new tools that allow us to go into these arteries safely and all of the trials we've done have shown overwhelming benefit. It's one of the most strongly efficient treatments that have ever been studied in medicine. So, Peter, when you say new technologies, are you talking things like robotics? Uh, that's that's a very timely question. Not yet, okay. but that's uh, somewhere on the, along the way. About um, the, 
until now, if there's a clot that's causing a stroke by not enough blood getting to the brain, therefore no oxygen, no glucose, and the brain dies, intravenous thrombolytic drugs were given. And these are drugs that dissolve clot. Mm. As you can imagine, something that dissolves clot also causes bleeding. So there's a risk of bleeding with these drugs. They were very effective and they were the first proven effective treatment for stroke. What's come along since then is the, uh, are these very small um, metal cages, like a stent on a wire, that can grip the clot and pull it out. The benefit is it takes the clot out almost straight away, whereas the, the thrombolytic drugs take uh-huh. one to two to three hours. Right. And also it works in larger vessels that have got a clot in which the intravenous drugs don't work very well at all. Uh-huh. So tell us, I mean, give us a mental image. How do we, how do you thread that wire through different branches? I mean, do you, you must be able to turn it or negotiate or bend it or what happens? Yeah, so so the, the wire has a little shape on it. We can actually choose that shape. It might just be a right angle bend. It might be a 30 degree shape. Right. Then we have a picture. We inject some dye into the blood vessels. That shows us where the branching is happening. And then under X-ray control, we can turn that wire so it engages the branch we want to go in. The challenge comes when you get up to the blockage. Yeah. Because until you get to the blockage, you've got a Melways in front of you that yeah. shows you where to go. Once you get to the blockage, there's nothing. Oh, because the dye doesn't get past there to show you what's going on. Absolutely. Oh, and right, that, right, that's right. when there's a, there's a leap of faith and you <laughs> go really? where the artery should be and you go very gently so you don't put a hole in the artery and you're going out into what looks like empty space on the X-ray pictures. How far do you have to go in that empty space? You've got to go three to four centimetres past the blockage in general. You're joking, into, into like a black space. You don't know what's there. Into black space, yeah. Man, this is just hair-raising stuff, really. It's exciting. And, and then the next thing was these devices. Yeah. We, we had a device that looked a little bit like a Christmas tree on a wire, right. and that came out that was called the Mercy device. That was um, probably back in the late 90s, mid-2010. Yeah. And that device was very soft, so it didn't do any harm, but it also wasn't strong enough to grab most clots, so it wasn't very effective at grabbing it. The devices we've got now are very effective in grabbing the clot and pulling it out. So, Peter, could you just walk us through a case and how somebody might get to you, what the signs and symptoms of a stroke might be? Sure. If I, if I go back to a person from, I think it was last year, um, actually, and this is important too, there's, a, there's an idea that people who are having ischemic stroke uh, in their 80s, 90s, 70s, um, this particular patient I'm thinking of was in their 40s, a so 40-year-old um, mother, who came in with uh, a stroke. How did she know she was having a stroke? She got up to go to the bathroom um, in the night, couldn't walk properly, had no power in her leg, called for help, couldn't speak. So had lost speech, had lost power in her leg, also some power in the arm was reduced. Uh, Fortunately, she had somebody with her. An ambulance was called, the FAST acronym, Face, Arm, Speech, Time. Get on to it quickly call triple zero get to the nearest hospital she came into hospital she had a cat scan now unlike a, a heart attack where you just unblock the artery we have to make sure on the cat scan that it's an ischemic stroke with a blood clot as opposed to a bleed inside the head very different treatment 
pathways. So one's a blockage, one's a kind of bleed, yeah. Yeah, and the, and the bleed, in fact, you were talking about earlier with uh, patients who are having MDMA um, and a hemorrhage, a bleed into their brain. Clearly, if you gave that person a thrombolytic drug to dissolve clot, it would make be it, fatal. Make it worse, yeah. It would make it worse. So she, she gets into hospital. She has uh, We have a code stroke um, protocol at Royal Melbourne Hospital where uh, people are, are, are zipped straight from the front door of the emergency department to the CAT scan. They can even bypass the emergency department processes to do wow. things as fast as possible. Wow. We do a CAT scan that shows whether there's a bleed or whether it's a blood clot causing not enough blood. They also have a CTA, which is an angiogram to look at the arteries to find that there's a large vessel that's blocked. About 20% of strokes have a large vessel that's blocked that we can unblock and needs this operation. So a, a CTA is it's basically like a CAT scan with yes. dye, uh, radio-opaque dye that goes into your bloodstream, and on the CAT scan you can actually see a 3D uh, image of what... Abs- Absolutely, and the 3D image, again, one of the reasons the trials we'd done um, in the early part of this decade were neutral. They didn't show a benefit of this technique. Part of that problem was we didn't have good CTA. Mm -hmm. So patients who were put in the trial may or may not have had the kind of blockage that we can treat well. Mm -hmm. Now we can find the patients who've got the most at-risk type of stroke with a blocked artery they're the ones that need to go straight to this procedure. And this uh, uh, um, young woman you were talking about who had the stroke, what happened after you got her through uh, the CTA? So in parallel, knowing that she was coming in, there's an alert that's done before the patient arrives. We had the team ready to go. So as soon as the diagnosis was confirmed on the CAT scan, she was taken straight from the CAT scan table up to the angiography suite and awake rather than under general anaesthesia to speed things up uh, we put on the table we put a local anaesthetic in the femoral near the femoral artery we did the angiogram which proved that not only did she have the blocked main artery inside her head she also had what's called a dissection which is a tear in the internal carotid artery in the neck which is where the clot came from right so you wouldn't you certainly wouldn't want to be giving somebody with a dissection a thrombolysis either would you because Ideally not. Some, some, of them can, some of them yes, some yeah. of them no, but yeah. it's unlikely to help. Right, right. And so what happened? Tell us the follow-up of the patient. So with her awake, and it's, it's an unpleasant procedure, um, but yeah. so far everybody who's had the procedure the next day is very happy that they had the procedure. <laughs> yeah. uh, we do use general anaesthesia if necessary, but it slows things down. And every minute delay, you, you lose 1.9 million neurons. I just wanted to ask Peter, so like she was aware of that face arm speech time acronym, knew she was in trouble. Say she had delayed um, coming to hospital till the morning, what would you expect the effects have been for her? Yeah, that, that's a very, very good question. And that's where the big thrust is you've got to get people early. Uh, the earlier you get someone, the better the outcomes. A lot of the treatment trials we first did found that this was a benefit if we could start the procedure within six hours of symptom onset. Anything longer than that wasn't beneficial. We have found now that there are some people who can benefit out to 24 hours, but the proportion of those people who can benefit that late is very small. And even if you're in that group, if you're treated one minute earlier, you've got a significantly better chance of, uh, of a good outcome. So literally every minute counts. Absolutely. And we actually have a, uh, in fact, one of our fellows uh, last year bought us a clock which we've got on the wall. We have a time stamp. So we time 
when the patient arrives in the room, when they get on the table, when we put the needle in, when we achieve reperfusion. We're doing that because we have a continual cycle of improvement. We're right. trying to get faster and faster and faster. Um, so tell us about the success rates, complication rates of this procedure. And what's the name of this procedure? Uh, it's got about 10 different <laughs> names. Uh, mechanical thrombectomy is one, um, and that's probably the one to go with, mechanical thrombectomy. Uh, in our own trial, we found that 70% of patients were independent after treatment, with our treatment, versus the best medical therapy, which was the thrombolytic drug, in which about 30 nine percent were better so it's almost twice as likely to have an independent recovery with this procedure and although all the trials around the world were slightly different in terms of absolute risk reduction uh, the relative benefit it's about a two times benefit wow and what are the uh, complications potential complications potential complications are failing to unblock the clot um, to uh, of tearing the artery and causing bleeding all of those things add up to a few percent complication rate right. but all of that's taken into account in the trials so that the overwhelming benefit that you get from the operation includes the patients who have a complication you're still more likely to benefit even if there's a risk of complication so you'll benefit if you do get a complication you you will likely have benefited as well in terms of your function is that what you're saying or i was I, i'd like that to be the case but <laughs> oh, I, 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 was, I was more saying that um that even though some patients will have a complication if we look at the whole pool of oh, people well, who come into treatment yeah. you'll, you'll benefit over overall the population benefits and is mechanical thrombectomy available everywhere or you know uh, the the victorian government along with some stakeholders got involved very early on and, and we were way ahead of the rest of Australia and in many cases other places in the world so we instituted a response to the evidence to try and make this available to the entire population within Victoria it's available at Royal Melbourne Hospital we were the first centre designated as a 24-7 service so we had to guarantee that we will take any patient, any time, regardless of whether the hospital is on bypass, we take the patient, we treat them. And regardless where the patient is from, is there a catchment area they, thing? Or? It, the entire state of Victoria was our catchment zone for that. About two-thirds of our patients came from outside metropolitan Melbourne, the rest came from Melbourne. Since then, uh, Monash Medical Centre has been designated the second uh, endovascular clot retrieval mechanical thrombectomy centre. And so at the moment, the Eastern one-third of the state would be triaged to Monash Medical Centre. The western, northwestern part of the state would come to Royal Melbourne Hospital. There are other sites in Melbourne that can also provide mechanical thrombectomy, but they're not mandated to provide it 24-7, right. and they may not have the cover or the equipment available to do that. So what happens, I mean, when you call up the ambulance and you say, look, I'm, I think I'm having a stroke, do, do they... Do they send? Do the drivers must know, or the paramedics, sorry, must know that okay, Royal Melbourne or uh, Monash Medical Centre is where we're going to take you pronto. Absolutely, perfect question because this wouldn't work if the ambulance guys yeah. weren't on board. So yeah. Ambulance Victoria has been integral in this. There's a there's a whole new process. As soon as the word stroke is flagged in yeah. a call to the ambulance service, it activates a certain series of questions and pathways. Yeah. Um, in Metropolitan Melbourne, it's effectively a road ambulance. If it's 
nine to five um, within central Melbourne, it may actually be the mobile stroke unit, which is the CAT scan in the back of an ambulance. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah Tell yeah. us about that. I haven't heard about that. Oh, we, we, that started uh, working last year. It's centred at Royal Melbourne Hospital. It has a 20-kilometre zone. Uh, there's one at the moment. It's the first one in Australia, and it's the first one in the Southern Hemisphere. There's a CAT scan in the back of an ambulance. The ambulance will go out to your home... You can have the CAT scan at your home and if you've got the bleed in the brain, you clearly don't want the intravenous drug given. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if you don't have a bleed and it's likely to be a stroke, you can receive the blood thinner drug, the thrombolytic drug, at your home, hopefully in the golden hour, within one, one hour of onset. Uh, and then you come to a centre where, if you need it, you have the mechanical thrombectomy. If not, you have the, the, the medication. This may be a dumb question, but I thought CAT scanners were really big... How do you put it in the back of an ambulance? They are extraordinarily big. There's a special one that's not too bad, but it had to be a special ambulance that was fitted out with new suspension and everything yeah. else. And it, it has to get out to the centre. It has to be levelled. It has there's a, uh, there's a lot to right. make it work. Did you say we're the first in the world to do that, or is that no first in Australia? Oh. Uh, it started off in Germany. There's a place in Germany, and there's another place in Houston yeah. that um, initiated this, and we were one of the very first wow. to follow on from that experience. So just thinking about the epidemiology of stroke, what what are we talking about? How many in Victoria, do you know local or Australian figures, are, uh, uh, the number of strokes per year? Uh, I've got some figures here from uh, the World Stroke Organisation um, of whom Professor Stephen Davis, who worked here in Melbourne, was president for a long time. Um, and they had uh, 16,500 stroke admissions per year in Victoria. Um, it's the second leading cause of death. Um, there are 10,000 infarcts, which are ischemic strokes, mm. the ones we're talking about with the blocked artery. Yeah. The others are made up of hemorrhagic strokes. What do you do with hemorrhagic strokes, like with, where there's a bleed? Uh, if there's a hemorrhagic stroke, which is a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a, a ruptured aneurysm, which has a, yeah, occurs in young people, has a high chance of causing fatality. More than 50% of people die with that sort of bleed. We treat the aneurysm. Some of them, about two-thirds, are treated by me from a minimally invasive approach. The others are treated by neurosurgery with a cut on the head and clipping the aneurysm. Of the bleeds into the brain, like we were talking about before, related to MDMA or hypertension, yeah. um, those are typically treated with um, careful observation. There are some new drugs that are being looked at. There are some new trials that are being looked at. If they're very large, they can have the clot removed surgically. All of that's more in a, a research mode at the right. moment than, than, if, than currently effective. And we do have a little bit of time left, and I did warn you that I like to know about the people that get into the kind of occupations that we have talk on the show. Growing up, I mean, did you have a fascination with brains and frogs <laughs> and electricity? Or <laughs> and and there's, there's not too many people listening, so this might be... <laughs> yeah, with low, low right. numbers listening. Yeah, 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 OK. Nobody will tell. Disclose uh, all. I'll go to, to later. I, I always... I always wanted to do medicine, but within medicine, I was very much drawn to surgery. So more more an interventionist, right. and some would say less a thinker. I'd like to think you can be you can be both. Uh, we're sitting opposite a, a, a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist. Yeah. Uh, but I was always interested in surgery. But 
I was fascinated by minimally invasive surgery and it's there's a lot of serendipity in life so I happened to be around when minimally invasive surgery was yeah. was being explored people would be familiar with laparoscopic operations mm-hmm. for gallbladders mm-hmm. um, rather than a big cut mm-hmm. the same sort of thing was happening in other areas and I was lucky to go into radiology which was doing minimally invasive things in the vascular system oh. Oh, I just want to go back to your patient and also acknowledge that you probably saved this woman who had children and she, this is Mother's Day, so what a great gift to her and thank you. Thank you very much. It is Mother's Day, isn't it? It is Mother's Day. Oh. And, but I, I'm, I'm very sensitive about Mother's Day, so some yeah. people would like to be a mother and mm. can't be. Some people have lost their mothers. Mm. And so for those people, I'm uh, you know, thinking of you mm. um, yeah. and also the mothers that have had difficulties and have had ch- sick children. So motherhood is a big, huge it's umbrella. It's not all a bunch of roses. It's not all a bunch of roses. <laughs> yeah. So God bless you all. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And you are listening to Dr Mel Practice, Ness EpiPen, who just rushed into the studio. Also, Dr G-Spot, we have Professor Peter Mitchell um, sticking with us. And in the hot seat now is Nurse Sonia Elia. Is that right? Did I pronounce that yes, right? Yes, correct. You happen to be a friend of EpiPen's. Correct. So I'm going to let EpiPen talk to you because EpiPen says I interrupt too much. I am shutting up. Because also you had a late night last night, so you can sit back and have a snooze. Um, Sonia, just tell us about yourself and what you do and your amazing qualification in Victoria. You're one of the first nurses to become a... Nurse practitioner in the field of immunisation. And what did that involve? How did you get that qualification? So I've been working at the Children's Hospital for 22 years and uh, I became working in immunisation probably about 16 years ago. And one of the things with the immunisation schedule is there's always vaccines that aren't on the schedule that we'd like children to receive. So I really saw the potential for a nurse practitioner role to be able to prescribe vaccines for children um, to receive vaccines that aren't on the schedule. And so I undertook my Masters of Advanced Nursing Practice uh, quite some years ago. And then I had to undertake, you know, 5,000 hours of advanced practice where I was actually prescribing vaccines not on the schedule, ordering serology for patients. 5,000 hours? Sorry to interrupt. Yes, 5,000 hours. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try and figure out how many days that is. <laughs> Divide by eight. And so then you apply to the uh, nursing board um, of Australia in in, in Victoria and apply for endorsement as a nurse practitioner. And why immunisations? How did you get into immunisations in the first place? So I was actually working on the general medical unit at the hospital. So I was looking after children who had meningococcal disease, children with chickenpox. We had children with uh, hib meningitis who had not been vaccinated, uh, pneumococcal disease, rotavirus. I was looking after all of these patients. And one of the things that we used to do on the wards was, you know, give vaccinations to babies that were due. And there was this practice of uh, the nurses all giving the vaccines all at once, simultaneously. And I thought, "Mm, is that a good idea? So I did a research fellowship and uh, then sort of migrated into the immunisation service as a result of that. And I just felt better, I think, once I had my own children about protecting kids against disease and not 
necessarily caring for them because I found that really tough. So I'm all about sort of trying to get to it beforehand. Prevention. Prevention, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You talked about the schedule, so off schedule and on schedule. What, what were you meaning by those things? So the National Immunisation Program in Australia is particularly comprehensive anyway. There are lots of vaccinations on the schedule, which is fantastic because it means that we're protecting children against you know, more diseases than we could have previously. But there are vaccines that are available that aren't on the schedule. And often families get very upset when you know, their child becomes unwell with the disease because they weren't informed of the vaccinations that are available for purchase. And one of those that's most predominant at the moment is the meningococcal B vaccination. So the government recently funded the meningococcal ACWY, which is fantastic, but we also have this B strain, which is causing a problem particularly in children, young children under five, but also in the adolescent uh, population as well. And so meningococcal disease is one of those things that's rare to catch, but if you catch it, it's obviously devastating for families. Uh, so most parents, when they're informed about these vaccines that are available, you know, want to have them. And uh, at the moment, you can get them through your GP uh, with a prescription. And you can get them, obviously, through the immunisation service at the Royal Children's Hospital because I'm a nurse practitioner. I can prescribe that for those families. That's fantastic. Um, so one of the things that we were thinking also about discussing with you is the annual influenza shot or flu vaccine. Um, I know you're passionate about this and we had a question from uh, Dr Malpractice because he said to me in the corridor at one of the leading hospitals, he said, oh, I don't need the flu shot because I've had the flu. And I said, um, interesting, which flu strain did you have? And he said, oh, one of them. A, and, it was uh, A. A, A. Anyway, would you like to tell us about the flu vaccine, how many strains, when you should have it, how it works? Yes, yeah, very topical at the moment because uh, in Victoria we've actually seen a fourfold increase in influenza disease at the moment. And it's a very early time in the season. I think last year most people wanted to wait until you know May, June to get their vaccination because we know the vaccine provides about three to four months protection. So when we would normally see our peaks of flu disease was in August, September. So this year, unfortunately, there's been a lot more flu cases uh, at the moment in Victoria. There's lots of different reasons for that. The first is that we've actually seen an increase in flu disease in our summer period, and that's because of the return traveller. Oh. So they've gone overseas to Europe or USA over December, January, and then returned with souvenirs and flu <laughs> disease. <laughs> And because of that and the fact that people have been waiting until, you know, May, June to get their vaccination, we're seeing this, you know, record number of uh, flu cases. So the questions that I get asked at the immunisation service at the hospital is when to have the vaccine, and it's now. Now it's absolutely the right time to get the vaccination. The vaccine protects against four strains of influenza, and the World Health Organisation... You know, get together and discuss, you know, at the end of last year what will be the strains that we think are going to be circulating this year and... Sometimes we get a good match and sometimes we don't. And so there has been some minor changes to the vaccine this year, but predominantly the vaccine provides protection against two A strains and two B. And, you know, I'm not surprised, Dr Malpractice, that mm. you had flu A because that tends to be what's uh, circulating mm. at the moment. Majority of cases are flu A. But there has also been some flu B, so we would still recommend people get the vaccination because you will be protected from those other strains. Well, see, ordinarily, I'm first in line for a chuppa chup when they have the... <laughs> Explain the, the chuppa chup. Well, at, at our hospital, if you get a flu vax, you get a chuppa chup. So I'm usually there, like, late March. I'm, like, I'm first in line to get a to the vax. But then I spoke to a mate of mine... Who's in it, who does infectious disease? And he said, "Now wait till later, because you know a lot of people, the, the immunisation uh, wears off. 
So if you get it later, you're covered to those, you know, July, August, September. Mm-hmm. So I waited. So it's clearly his fault that I waited. <laughs> <laughs> so I should have gotten it earlier. Correct. Right. Yes. So yes. now I, I learned because you don't want the flu. Absolutely don't it want is, the flu. I actually, I saw um, one of the the GPs we have on the show here, from, and I walked into his office, and he said, "You've either got malaria or the flu." Because you look <laughs> terrible. I seriously, I, I couldn't. I could just walk, getting out of bed when you've got the flu. It's just. I mean, he said to me, the diagnostic test is. He says to patients it, to see if they've got the flu or a cold. He says. If there was $1,000 under the bed in the room next to you, would you get up to get it? And if you've got a cold, you go, yeah. If you've got the flu, you go, nah. I just, I just, just leave it there. I just cannot be bothered. That's what it feels like. It's really bad. That's an interesting diagnostic tool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm What's pretty this? sure it's validated. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, we were thinking of also in the at work about our children who aren't at risk necessarily of influenza, but... Um, my son's at university and I was thinking definitely young people, in fact, we should be having a mass immunisation against the flu. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so the data from Victoria actually indicates that the predominant age group that's been affected by flu so far this year is the 5 to 14 year age group. Wow. And yeah, and we would kind of expect that because they're school age, uh-huh. so they're all sneezing and coughing on each other in school, and it's also the age group where the vaccine is not funded. So we have uh-huh. a funded program in Victoria for children less than five, so six months to five-year-olds, and we have a program for the over 65 as well as anyone with a medical condition. So yes, yeah, certainly university students, some of this the same, you know, situation. They're all you know um, partying together and studying together, and so it increases their chance of picking up the flu but it's the last thing they need because then it's you know time off um you know the university um course and so how can they, how can they get the flu vaccine what are the sources yeah so the flu vaccine is available through local council it's available through gp practice it's also available through chemists because pharmacists are able to give immunizations as well um so that'd be the recommendations for getting the flu how much does it cost $25. It depends because right. um, some chemists will charge $25, right. but I believe Chemist Warehouse do it for twelve ninety nine. Yeah. Oh, really? Mm. That's yeah. good for uni students. I mean, that's about mm. 12 beers. They could <laughs> 12 beers? beers? What kind of beers yeah, are you sure drinking? Dollar, <laughs> dollar beers? Is that not still a <laughs> Three triple R. So, Sonia, how, how the dickens do, does, the, <laughs> does the flu shot work? What are, what are we talking here? You give a little jab and... You're protected. What, what's the process? Yeah, so vaccines work by when you give the vaccination, the immune system develops antibodies. So in the same way as if you were to get the disease, your body develops antibodies that then fights the infection and then you have those antibodies that you know linger and provide protection the next time you're exposed. So a vaccine works by giving the vaccine, and, but the actual virus is then weakened or completely killed which in the instance of the flu vaccine, it is completely killed. Uh, And so then the body develops those antibodies and provides protection uh, against the influenza virus. So when people tell you that they got the flu from the vaccination, it's biologically impossible because it is a completely killed vaccine. So you don't get... uh, Sometimes with live vaccines, like the measles, mumps, rubella, you can sometimes get some side effects from the vaccine a week later that you can get a rash that looks like measles and a fever. Uh, Because the flu vaccine is completely killed... you really just get that local reaction. And See, think. I've got a theory about this. Uh-oh. This is my theory. I reckon what happens is for some people who get a flu-like illness or the flu after an injection, it's because they get the, the, the prodrome, the kind of the couple of days before you get a flu, you feel a bit off, and they think, oh, 
better get my flu vax. They don't get their flu vax. They then proceed to go on to getting full-blown flu and then they attribute their symptoms to the vaccination. But it's actually started before. Correct. See? That's a very good theory. Thank you. And uh, the, I'm going to call it Mal's theory. Mal's theory. So, and I've, I was told once, you can't even get the flu from a flu shot, even if you tried. <laughs> so how are you going to try? Because so <laughs> it's so dead and it's we really must get that message out that it's a very, uh, you know, safe Inoculous. vaccine. And yes, and you can't get the flu from the flu shot. Right. Um, tell me, in, in big institutions, health institutions, there, there are benchmarks set by government about how many of the employees and students need to have uh, be immunised against the flu. What are we looking at in Victoria with regard to that? Yeah, so Victoria stipulate that at least 80% of staff within an organisation have had a flu vaccination. And that's not just for the staff, you know, to protect them against flu and also prevent sick days from work. It's primarily to protect your patients because mm. if, you know, most people who come to work, they're so conscientious and even when they're unwell, still come to work, mm. they're just placing their patients at risk. So the government stipulate that uh, benchmark so that, you know, pa- patients are ultimately protected. Um, Peter asked a question about having two flu shots. So if oh, you have yeah. one early and then because it takes two weeks to work and then that wanes the effect, what about getting a booster dose in, say, August? That's a great question, Peter. And thanks, EpiPen. Um, so the recommendation is if you are getting the vaccination in April, May, as I mentioned earlier, the vaccine provides about three to four months protection. So you will still be protected in you know August and September if we do get another late uh, late peak of influenza disease. We wouldn't really recommend that second booster, but it is an individual-based discussion, so depending on the patient's risk factors. Certainly, as if someone was tr- planning travel, as I said, over December, January, then a booster of flu vaccine would be recommended because oh. you are going into the winter months in you know, Europe or the USA, so we would definitely recommend a booster in that oh. instance. So, Sonia, what are some of the main reasons people give for not having the flu vaccination? We heard, you know, Dr Malpractice said, I already had the flu. What are some of the other reasons people give? The most reasons we get is that the flu vaccine gave me the flu. Uh, Some people just don't believe in it. Um, they're, They're probably the most common reasons to be honest most people have this real belief that um you know that the flu vaccine gives them the flu and unfortunately some pregnant women think that it's not safe during pregnancy where we know it's one of those vaccines that is completely safe during pregnancy and we know that pregnant women are particularly vulnerable if they were to catch flu disease both to themselves but also their um, unborn baby Um, so that's another thing that we sort of hear a lot about as well and needle phobia, do you have... I mean, I know children don't like vaccines very often, but I know that there's a small percent of people that of all ages that don't like needles. Yeah, correct. And I think that's one of the downfalls, I think, of those mass vaccination sessions is when you have someone who's needle phobic, you know, watching everybody go before you, they're just not going to present to those particular sessions. So something that we do provide at the hospital is, uh, you know, a bit more of a personal service, if you like, to the needle phobic people where they can come and privately get the flu vaccination. Uh, At the Children's Hospital, we have a proportion of children, as you say, who are needle phobic as well. And we do offer a service at the hospital, again, thanks to uh, my nurse 
practitioner endorsement where we actually can offer nitrous sedation. So because I can prescribe the sedation, uh, those patients can actually have their vaccinations with some laughing gas and that's proved to be really successful. Can, can anybody get that? Like... <laughs> I was going to say sign yeah, me up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. You three or oh, two. Peter Dink. was smiling too. Yeah. Dinkum, you can get nitrous oxide. Correct, for yes. So we provide that service to people up to the age of 18. So, oh, so. come on. That's ageist. <laughs> I was going to say, Sonia, I've actually seen um, a few people with needle phobia in my clinical psychology practice and um, I've actually gone with them as their psychologist to get their vaccination. So you could always, if it's something that's going to be ongoing for you, you could see a clin psych and, and they can help you go through the process and hopefully make it a bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, what we try and do, obviously our, our goal is to get those vaccinations in to provide protection, but we certainly refer to psych services so that we can actually deal with the issue at hand to help them, you know, future planning for pre other procedures. Yeah. And before we close today, it's a very special day, Sonia, and I think you and I should have a hug after this show because it is International Nurses Day. No way. Oh, congratulations. Why is it today? <laughs> what, what makes so today is Florence Nightingale's birthday, oh. which is the day that we celebrate International Nurses Day. So a big shout out to all the nurses working around Victoria, around Australia, um, but also to the nurses working at the Royal Children's Hospital. I know there's some special, uh, you know, cakes being delivered by our executive team and they're all working very hard today. So a big shout out to all of them. Oh, lovely. Do we have that at our hospital? Oh, if not, we uh, should do it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll just bring in a PAV tomorrow. <laughs> The Children's Hospital is such a special hospital, really. It's so gorgeous and all those little kids that have this fabulous treatment and care and adults. They still have the, um, what are they called? The marmosets, not marmosets, what are they called? The mercats? Oh, the meerkats. Yes, they, they do. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And a new fish tank and a new shark. But, oh. yeah, lovely. And all the nurses everywhere that might be working today or tomorrow or wherever, you know, keep up the great work. Yeah. Thank you so much, Sonia, for, for coming in. And, you. you know, you've uh, dispelled a lot of the myths about the flu vaccine, um, in particular that if you've had the flu, you might still need to get the flu vaccine, which is um, was news to me as a doctor for 30 years. Uh, thank you so <laughs> much to uh, Nurse EpiPen for coming in, too, to Dr G-Spot. Thank you for having me. And uh, Professor Peter Mitchell for telling us all about stroke and the fantastic life-saving uh, procedures that you're doing. That's just uh, really awesome. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.